This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 6, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has heard arguments on whether or not so-called enemy combatants should have access to U.S. courts. Tim Lynch, the director of the Cato Institute Project on Criminal Justice, filed a brief on behalf of those detainees and listened in on yesterday's arguments. This case represents an important test of the separation of powers principle because what we have in this case is the president and Congress getting behind this law. It's called the Military Commissions Act, which tries to withdraw habeas corpus jurisdiction from the courts. And then the argument is whether or not this withdrawal of jurisdiction is constitutional or not. So the court, well, this is what we argue in the Cato brief, is that the court should come to the defense of its own jurisdiction and uh, its role and province in habeas corpus litigation. Is there a case in which the court might have ruled that they, in fact, don't have jurisdiction to make decisions? They do do that from time to time. When they think that there's like an intra-branch squabble, let's say, between the executive branch and the legislative branch, sometimes the courts say, we are not going to get into that dispute. This is between you guys to fight it out, and we're not going to assume jurisdiction over that type of situation. But in this case, the Bush administration and Congress have both said, you may not get involved. That's right. And then the question becomes whether or not that is constitutional. If you look at the habeas corpus provision in the Constitution, it does say things about suspending the writ. The writ has been suspended in the past, but that really hasn't come into play in this case because the Department of Justice is not arguing that the Military Commission Act suspends the writ. They're kind of coming at it through uh, the back door by with playing around with these jurisdictional rules. So because the Department of Justice isn't uh, officially saying we're suspending the writ, then the court has to proceed on the assumption that the writ is in force, but then rule on these jurisdictional questions about uh, whether the court you know, sh- should have jurisdiction over these cases. Now, this is the third time that a case like this has come to the Supreme Court or dealing with similar issues. How have those gone down? They've gone against the government. Uh, We have seen this very dispute go up to the court in 2004 in a case called Brazil, where the government was, again, basically saying we have enemy combatants at the Guantanamo Guantanamo, uh, prison facility, and they do not have any uh, uh, legal arguments under our Constitution. If the president wants to set up a prison camp that's overseas that only contains non-citizens, this isn't something for federal court jurisdiction. And what the Supreme Court said in that case is we're not going to get to that constitutional point, but we found a congressional statute that confers jurisdiction uh, to these habeas corpus claims, and so they can get into federal court. And then president and the Congress came back and said, all right, we're going to amend that congressional statute by enacting the Military Commissions Act. So it's kind of the tendency of the court to want to move in baby steps, increments, rather than to get to some of the broad constitutional principles, which we tend to emphasize in our legal briefs. What is the key constitutional principle here besides the right of habeas corpus and the U.S. territory? The question is is whether the courts have jurisdiction over these uh, writs of habeas corpus. Uh, The government tends to emphasize uh, a legal concept of territoriality, basically saying that the writ of habeas corpus is very important, but it is really only for people, citizens, and for people here in the United States. So the implication is, is that if the executive goes abroad, he can set up 
these prison camps and that the prisoners there will not have access to federal courts because of this issue of territoriality. In our legal brief, we are saying that that is not the touchstone of habeas corpus territoriality. We are saying that the courts have a role on habeas corpus litigation if they have jurisdiction over the power of control over the prisoners. And in this situation, whether it's the CIA, whether it's the Department of Defense, uh, the ultimate custodian of these prisoners is the President of the United States. He's here in Washington, and the courts have jurisdiction over him. Because the writ of habeas corpus really acts upon the jailer, not the prisoner. If a writ of habeas corpus is granted, that is an order to the jailer to release his grasp over the prisoner. Some people get confused about what the writ of habeas corpus is all about. They think if if the courts get habeas jurisdiction, that means the prisoners go free. That's not correct. What habeas corpus does, it allows a prisoner to get into a court of law to make his case before an impartial judge. The judge will then hear arguments on both sides. He'll hear from the prisoner as to why the prisoner thinks he should not be imprisoned, but he will also hear arguments from the government as to whether they have valid reasons for holding the prisoner. And then the judge will decide. If the judge agrees with the government that this is a fighter who is trying to kill U.S. forces on a battlefield overseas, he's going to say, we have a very good reason for holding this person send him back to the prison to be held. But the key thing is that if the judge finds that there's no valid or strong basis for holding the prisoner, then he has the power to set the prisoner free. That's why the framers would refer to the writ of habeas corpus as the great writ, because there is that judicial check on the power of the executive to put certain people in prison. According to the story in the Washington Post, Arlen Specter voted for the Military Commissions Act and said at the time the court could, quote, clean up the parts of the law that he voted for, that he thought were unconstitutional. Yes, this is a classic case of legislators wanting to have it both ways. When this uh, legislation came before Congress, some of these guys vote for these things, and then then they, some of them secretly hope that the courts will rule their pieces of legislation unconstitutional. This is a case where a legislature has gone out into the open to say, I voted for something, there were constitutional problems with it, and I hope the courts invalidate it. Uh, this is, a, I think, is, is an example of you know legislators abdicating their responsibility to vote against unconstitutional legislation. Well, how seriously does a legislator take his oath if he's willing to openly vote for something that he himself believes to be unconstitutional? He did not take his oath as uh, uh, seriously as uh, one would have hoped. That's that's for sure. But it is is fairly common. We saw this in the campaign finance uh, situations where lots of legislators um, voted for this legislation, and then in private they said, "Don't, but don't worry." We think the courts will declare this stuff unconstitutional, so there's nothing to worry about. And this is something we emphasize here at Cato, is that all three branches have a responsibility to uh, defend the Constitution, and these legislators should not get into this game of uh, shifting responsibility for unconstitutional legislation to the courts. They should vote these things down in the legislative branch, because you do not know ever know for sure what the courts will do. So they have a very important responsibility to vote against anything that they think is unconstitutional, and that's what Arlen Specter should have done. Tim Lynch is the director of the Cato Institute Project on Criminal Justice. You can read Lynch's recent brief submitted to the Supreme Court at Cato.org.